or as we refer to it, the best book to have ever been printed. Certainly from uh, Gutenberg or when they used to do them by hand. Sharon Doran here from the <laughs> wow. CCTruth.net Bible Study. Hello, Sharon. Hi, Bruce. Good afternoon. And good afternoon to you, too. So uh, what's been going on in your world? Uh, oh, boy. Kids are back to school. Uh, football, cross country. I don't know. Homework, homework, homework already. Well, so. thank you for the work you put in uh, on this uh, segment of the program. And uh, also on the horizon here, you're going to be getting uh, your uh, Bible study. At Creighton Prep, of course, that's been full for months now in terms of being able to put live bodies in there, but uh, distance learning is available at SeekingTruth.net. That's right. Anyone can uh, join at any time by computer online at SeekingTruth.net. Thanks, Bruce. Um, We'd love to have anyone out there join us. You'll get all the lectures with all the images. And this year we're doing the Synoptic Gospels, so we'll see how Matthew, Mark, and Luke see together. All right. Well, today we are going to look at Mary as Ark of the Covenant. Mm-hmm. And uh, the month of August, of course, one of uh, many great Mary months. <laughs> Mary, yes. Mary month of May, of mm-hmm. course, uh, mm-hmm. August, October, too. A lot of uh, activity going around our Blessed Mother. But here we are nearly at the end of August. So uh, I thought we would uh, take a, a talk uh, about the Blessed Virgin Mary, look at some of the biblical roots. As we had two big feast days of Mary we celebrated this month, her Assumption into Heaven on the 15th, and a church feast day devoted to her queenship on the 22nd. Mm. And you know, Sharon, it, it almost does literally bring a tear to my eye, but many of our Protestant brothers and sisters don't talk too much about Mary. Uh, in fact, they kind of ignore her, don't really seem to emphasize her at all. Uh, many do tend to play down a role like she was just any other woman, but uh, we know she was not like any other woman. Oh, I know. It is it is it is a tragedy because Mary is the spiritual mother to all of us. Adam named Eve uh, the mother of the living in Genesis 3.20 after the fall. But we know that while Eve helped produce uh, living offspring, her children were not really fully alive because they were spiritually dead by uh, that original sin that was passed on in their spiritual DNA. But Mary, Mary truly is the mother of the living, and she's not to be ignored or forgotten. You know, Bruce, as a mom of five sons, I know what it feels like (laughs) to sometimes be ignored or forgotten. Sometimes I feel downright invisible. Mm -hmm. But uh, if I wait long enough, like um, maybe when everyone's (laughs) hungry or someone needs to be driven around (laughs) or someone needs clean socks or school pants, then I get recognized. And it just, it doesn't feel good being a mom and being ignored and only being talked to when your children need something. So I wondered uh, if Mary ever felt that way. And uh, I I fly to her when I'm desperate. And uh, she's always there waiting, faithfully waiting to dry the tears of her children. And uh, I know that Jesus does not want us to ignore his mother. Well, you know, Sharon, of course, Jesus was without sin, so he always would have honored that fourth commandment that was given to Moses on Mount Sinai in Exodus 20. Uh, verse 12, honor your father and mother so that you may mm. live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You know, Bruce, that is the only commandment that has a promise for us, that to live a long life in the land the Lord has given us. Mm-hmm. Jesus did not ignore his mother. He honored his mother. How do I know that? Because at the foot of the cross, when he is in the absolute greatest physical and emotional pain that a human being could possibly bear, who is he thinking of? his mom, his mother, and her welfare, and he gives her over to John's care. Why? 
because he has no other blood brothers, because Mary has no other sons of human blood origin. We Catholics believe that Mary is ever virgin. She didn't have other sons. If she would have had other sons, Jesus wouldn't have needed to give her over to John. He would have just given her over to the next oldest son, but he doesn't have physical blood brothers, so he entrusts her to John the Evangelist. Well, Sharon, there is the scripture that's often pointed out in Mark or Luke's gospel, um, I'm going to touch on it from Mark 3, at uh, verse 31. Okay. Uh, then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and brothers, he asked. Mm. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. So doesn't that uh, seem like he's kind of distancing himself a bit from his birth mother, Mary? Well, yeah, it seems like that, but that's not what it is at all. Here's Jesus. Here's what he's doing and why. In verse 35, Jesus says, Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. And he, Jesus Christ, the firstborn of a new creation, he's saying that if you want to be in my family, you must do my father's will. Mm. And who's the very first family member of Jesus Christ? Who is his very first disciple? Who is the very first one to do the Father's will in the New Testament? Could it be the one we've chosen to talk about Mm, today? Uh, A call from Scripture, that would be Mary. That's right. She is the first family member, the mother of God and the model disciple. Whoever does God's will is my brother, sister, and my mother. And he might even have looked over at Mary. You know, when when you were reading that, Bruce, he Mm. might have looked over and smiled at her. This is exactly what... What Mary did, it's recorded in Luke chapter 1. Jesus knows it. Mary knows it. But she will remain silent because she does not want to alert the prince of darkness who's waiting and watching for a virgin birth from a woman that he would have enmity with, a woman whose offspring would be very dangerous and, in fact, would crush his own head. So Mary knew all these things, but she remains silent and ponders these things in her heart. She's not going to tell until it's all over and the father's plan is complete. Mm. She will not thwart God's plan. She'll remain silent and obedient. You can trust Mary with any secret. I go to her with things that I would not want to tell anyone, even my closest friend. Some things I keep just between me and Mary, and I absolutely love that about her. She is a trusted friend and prayer partner. Amen. Amen. I know you love her, too. I do. Mary knows that an angel is going to come to her as a young virgin, and she is told that she would be overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. She would be impregnated in some way with a son who would be King David's royal son, who would establish an everlasting kingdom and have a forever throne, a forever kingdom. What kind of kingdom could this be? And Mary says, be it done unto me according to thy word. So Jesus said in that Mark scripture, whoever does God's will is my mother. Mary does God's will. She's not being dissed here by Jesus. Jesus knows it. Mary knows it. She is his mother in a real physical way, but she also knows this was no regular physical human conception. This whole thing is not the plan of man, but the plan of God. Her spouse has been the Holy Spirit of the eternally living God, and his conception in her, she was over shadowed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's talk for a minute about that interesting word, overshadowed. Mm-hmm. In the Greek translation, it's uh, episkiatse, and it's used in the Septuagint, 
which was the Greek Old Testament that was used at the time of Jesus. Mary is overshadowed. Episkiatse. That is the same word in the Old Testament, exactly the same word when the cloud of God's glory overshadows the tabernacle at Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 40. Mm -hmm. God's glory in the form of a cloud overshadows the tent of the meeting. This is where God will meet man. Uh, It's also in Numbers 9 and Numbers 10. In Isaiah 4 verse 5, there's a prophecy about the cloud that will overshadow Mount Zion. And uh, Isaiah's talking about the branch of the Lord. And we remember branch town is Nazareth. And, and he's talking about the fruit of this land will be pride and glory of the survivors in Israel. And the Lord will create over all of Mount Zion and over those who assemble there a cloud of smoke by day and a glow of flaming fire by night. All the glory will be a canopy. There's a great overshadowing predicted there of Mount Zion. Also, we saw this same verb used when there was a great overshadowing in King Solomon's temple. He's dedicating this new temple he has built for the Lord. And the priests have to clear out of the holy place because this cloud filled the temple of the Lord. And the priests could not even perform their services because of this cloud overshadowing them. The glory of the Lord filled the temple. This is God's glory cloud. This is God's presence, the Shekinah glory overshadowing Mount Zion in Jerusalem, the same presence and power of God is going to overshadow Mary. This is this she's the tent, she's the tabernacle, she's the new ark of the covenant. The same glory cloud will overshadow her. Episkiatse, the presence of God is going to fill her. She's a new tabernacle, a new tent, a new ark of the covenant, a new sanctuary, a new mount Zion. Mary's the daughter of Zion. It's very symbolic of a new Zion, a new Israel, a new church. And what's Mary's response? She's troubled. The angel reassures her, no, 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 the Lord will be with you. Don't, do not be afraid. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Whenever it says that in scripture, do not be afraid. You're going to have a child, and this child's going to be the Messiah, the king, one of the, the one the prophets have predicted. This child's going to be God. She will be the Theotokos, the bearer of God. God. And I love um, St. Bernard of Claveau's uh, uh, reflections on this. He envisions this story, just what would happen with her yes. If she says yes to this, just what would happen with her yes. And, and he says, poor Abraham implores you, Mary, to say yes. David implores you, Mary, to say yes. Isaac implores you to say yes. Adam implores you, Mary, to say yes. Eve implores you to say yes. Why are all these dead heroes of the faith imploring Mary to say yes, Bruce? Well, I'm sure, and they were all trapped. They died before salvation had mm. come into the world, so they're waiting to be set free, waiting to be reunited with the Father. Exactly. Yeah. All those imprisoned spirits that will be set free with her yes. We remember in the Apostles' Creed, we remember when we say he descended into hell. Why does he descend into hell? He, he's going to free those imprisoned spirits. This is um, after after he dies on the cross in that tomb time on, on Holy Saturday. What is he doing? He's freeing the dead. He descended into hell. And uh, 1 Peter 3 tells us, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. Uh That's these guys, the spirits in prison, the heroes of our faith. There's no way these souls can be reunited with God the Father without the help of Jesus, because he is the way 
back to the Father, the way, the truth, and the life. He is the gate. I love the old icons of harrowing Hades. We see Jesus, after his resurrection, going to free the imprisoned spirits who had died before his sacrifice on the cross, Mm -hmm. those who were trapped in this holding place of Sheol who cannot free themselves. And we see him pull them out one by one, by one. The first one out was the last one killed. Yesterday's feast of John the Baptist. You, you see him as, as the first one Jesus pulls out. Yeah. And the very and then one after another, David and Abraham, one after another in order uh, of chronology, the last one's outer, Adam and Eve. And he pulls them out by the wrist. I've noticed, I've studied this icon, and he's grabbing them by the wrist, not the hand, because salvation is all his work. We have nothing to do with it. He frees us. It's a free gift of salvation. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. It's his sheer divine mercy pulling us out of the mire. All of us were depending on Mary's reply, on Mary's yes. All of us are affected by her yes. And Bernard of Claveau, uh, like him, we can say on your response, Mary, depends the salvation of all the children of Adam. Answer quickly, dear lady. We await your answer, your consent, O fairest among women. Arise and run and open to him. What was going on inside of Mary? Behold, I'm the handmaid of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. And in Greek, this is important, genoto, uh, the verb there. It's a passive, it's, it's not a passive acceptance, but it's an active joyful longing. She yearns to do this for the Lord. She responds to God as a lover, a receptive lover who when they see the needs of their beloved, she wants to run and fulfill his desire. Mm -hmm. God is her lover, her divine bridegroom. She wants to run to him and fulfill all his needs. So her yes is an active, joyful longing to say, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, be it done unto me according to your word. She's taken by love. The great saints wanted to seek God, to fulfill God's desires, not just to have their own desires fulfilled. This is the way God wills. uh, His will in us is made manifest when we say, let it be done unto me. And it's an ultimate prayer of acceptance or surrender to God's will. Let it be done to me according to your will. I've had uh, cancer for 14 years now, Bruce, and, and when I got it again this March, I really tried. I asked Mary for her intercession that, like her, I could say, let it be done to me according to your will, Father, not out of obligation, but out of love for him. Where could he most be magnified by me? And that's a really hard prayer, but it's really a powerful prayer because God ultimately wants our heart all of our heart like a lover, not just obedience. Obedience is great, and obedience always brings blessing, but he wants our heart like a lover. If we read the the Song of Psalms, I read it at a wedding this weekend, and I think some of the people were blushing in the pews. (laughs) Hark, my lover, here he comes leaping like a gazelle, but it is a love song between God and his people. Now, so Mary then is overshadowed and obedient to accepting God's will with her whole heart. Sharon, Mary really becomes an ark of the new covenant holding within her the very real presence of the living God. Mm, right. And and this is where some people miss it because, no, there's not a verse for that. We have to right. put it all together and read Scripture uh, as a living word in the canonical approach of the entire Old and New Testament together. So we have to remember that when Mary was a little girl, the presence of the living God 
was nowhere to be found, at Mm -hmm. least in the temple. The ark and its contents were missing from the temple. There was no ark of the covenant in the Holy of Holies. There had been no ark of the covenant since the time before the Maccabees. So this is really, really important in biblical history. Um, Seven books of the Bible were removed following the Protestant Reformation. All Christians had the same Bible before that, but after the Reformation, Uh, Protestants removed seven books from the Bible. And two of those books are one and two Maccabees, and they tell us important, critical, historical information very close to the time of Christ. So you can't just leave that crucial period of salvation history out. Mm. So way before Mary and Joseph were even born, the Ark of the Covenant was missing from the temple in Jerusalem. Some people think the Ark of the Covenant was taken by Nebuchadnezzar to Babylon when he captured and destroyed Jerusalem in 586 B.C. During that period, it was called the Babylonian exile. Uh, We can read about it, Bruce, if you would read from 2 Kings 25. Sure, starting at verse 13. Uh, The Babylonians broke up the bronze pillars, the movable stands, and the bronze sea that were at the temple of the Lord, and they carried the bronze to Babylon. They also took away the pots, shovels, wick trimmers, dishes, and all the bronze articles used in the temple service. The commander of the imperial guard took away the censers and sprinkling bowls, all that were made of pure gold or silver. Mm -hmm. A lot of plundering going on there. There's a Mm -hmm. similar account found in Jeremiah 52, um, but there's also another parallel in 2 Chronicles 36. But in Maccabees 2 Maccabees 2, verses 4 to 6, Jeremiah is told to hide that Ark of the Covenant to protect it. He's told to take it and hide it in a cave in Mount Nebo. Can you read from 2 Maccabees 2, verse, uh, starting at verse 4, Bruce? Sure. The same document also tells how the prophet Jeremiah, in virtue of an oracle, ordered that the tent and the Ark should accompany him, and how he went to the very mountain that Moses climbed to behold God's inheritance. When Jeremiah arrived there, he found a chamber in a cave in which he put the tent, the ark, and the altar of incense. Then he sealed the entrance. Some of those who followed him came up intending to mark the path, but they could not find it. When Jeremiah heard of this, he reproved them. The place is to remain unknown until God gathers his people together again and shows them mercy. Mm. So Jeremiah had hidden the Ark of the Covenant to protect it, but he prophesied that the place he hid it would remain unknown until God gathered his people together again and showed them mercy. So Bruce, when do you think this great moment of mercy is? When will God show his absolute greatest mercy to all mankind. Well, certainly as he gives the merciful gift of his only begotten son for our salvation on that cross. Yeah, and guess when that was? In the ninth hour. There we are. (laughs) (laughs) In the ninth hour, the hour of God's most incredible, divine mercy, boundless oceans of mercy flowing from under his sacred heart, water of baptism, blood of the Eucharist flowing from his pierced side. Zechariah 3 says that the Lord Almighty will remove the sin of this land in a single day. Ezekiel 47 predicts, uh, has a vision of um, the man brought me back to the entrance of the temple. I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple toward the east. The water was flowing down from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar. John shows us um, this river flowing from the temple to the east. The river is the spirit of life that flows from his pierced side and, uh, and, uh, Ezekiel 47 says that that uh, river that's flowing 
Uh, it, it makes all water fresh and fishermen are going to stand from the shore of Engedi and, and there's going to, they're going to spread their nets. Their fish are going to be so many. It, it's, it's, um, this river that flows from the temple. We know Jesus called himself the temple in John's gospel and this water's flowing from him. All these prophecies are fulfilled. All right, Sharon, let's do a little time warping here. Okay. Uh, let's go back to when Mary and Joseph were kids. There was no Ark of the Covenant in the temple because it was still missing, and the Jewish temple had much lacking without the Ark inside of it. Well, yeah, because remember, that Ark housed the true presence of God, and the Ark of the Covenant used to be placed in that absolute holiest of all spots in the temple, in the innermost chamber of the Holy of Holies, and only the high priest could go in only one time per year on the Feast of Yom Kippur to offer the sacrifice of blood on the mercy seat that covered the Ark of the Covenant. It was flanked with two huge cherubim, which reminds us that Adam and Eve had been banished from the garden, and there were two huge cherubim with flaming swords that guarded the garden. Uh, uh, and now we have this Ark, this holy Ark, and the, the God had given it to the people. They carried it with them in the Exodus. They carried it wherever they went, but it was no longer with them. There's no Ark in the temple. So where was God? Because that ark housed the true presence of God, and there's no ark in the temple. So was God not with them at this time? We know from history that in 167 BC, Antiochus ordered an altar to Zeus to be erected inside the Jewish temple. Mm. Bruce, read 2 uh, Maccabees 6 to see what was happening at this time in history, close to the time Jesus came on the scene. All right. Two women who were arrested for having circumcised their children were publicly paraded about the city with their babies hanging at their breasts and then thrown down from the top of the city wall. Oh, my. Yep. Others who had assembled in nearby caves to observe the seventh day in secret, Sabbath, were betrayed and all burned to death. Okay, this is a horrible time for the Jewish people. Yeah. They're really being persecuted. Many are being martyred. Antiochus is banning circumcision, which was law of Torah for baby boys on the eighth day, and he ordered them to eat pigs, for pigs to be sacrificed at the altar inside the temple. It was a huge desecration right. to the Jewish people. And uh, there's also an amazing story of the martyrdom of a mother and her seven sons in 2 Maccabees 7. Um, so it, we're going to fast forward a little bit. And after this area of the Maccabean revolt um, against the Seleucid Empire, the second temple was rededicated and again becomes the religious pillar of the Jewish Hasmonean kingdom, as well as culturally associated with the Jewish holiday of Hanukkah. But there's still no Ark of the Covenant in the temple. And at the time of Mary and Joseph, the temple was under reconstruction. King Herod had begun a massive building campaign, uh, campaign and capital campaign, we could say. <laughs> yeah. The temple um, was going to become Herod's temple, called that, because it was one of the largest construction projects of the first century B.C., and he was spearheading it. He was interested in perpetuating his name for all eternity, leaving a legacy, building a shem to himself, kind of like the days of the Tower of Babel. Right. But he had already built magnificent places like Masada and Caesarea and Tiberias, and, and he had built temples for various pagan gods to serve the Gentile populations. But um, all this was paid for with heavy taxes on local Jewish populations. So he decided to build his masterpiece, the Temple of Jerusalem, hoping to appease the Jews because he was sort of a puppet king. And uh, anyway, there's no Ark of the Covenant inside it. Uh, it's missing. It's still gone. And so um, 
what I'm what I'm going to end with is when Jesus comes on the scene, uh, John tells us in John two that Jesus Jesus has zeal for the temple. He uh, it's Passover time. He goes up and he finds that the temple's being misused, and he says to them, "Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up." And the Jews said, "This temple's been under construction for forty six years, and you're going to raise it up in three days." But the temple he's talking about is his body. Right. He is the temple, and when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered what he had said. And so he is the new temple. So we just have to look back and see when Mary and Joseph, after they had him, uh, they're going for purification in the temple as prescribed by Jewish law. This is in Luke chapter two. There's no ark and there's no presence of God in the temple. And the moment Joseph and Mary walk in with that baby, guess what? The presence of God is back in the temple again. Mm. And Mary is the ark. She was the holder in her womb. This baby has come from. And there's an old man, Simeon, and an old woman, a prophetess named Anna, and they're at the temple. Anna, I am I am specifically interested in today. Anna is a widow, an old, old widow. There's a prophetess, Anna, verse 36, Luke 2. Anna, the daughter of Phineal, the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, living there seven years with her husband after her marriage. And then as a widow until she was 84, she never left the temple, wow. ever. She never left the temple, but worshiped night and day with fasting and prayer. Why? because the presence of God isn't there and she's praying and longing and longing. She knows God promised Messiah. And coming forward at that very time, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who are awaiting the redemption of Jerusalem. She knows by the power of the Holy Spirit that the presence of God is back in the temple. And that makes Mary the ark that carried the true presence of God. And they're both standing in the temple. So now the temple has meaning again. But the temple's a building. And Jesus Christ says, I myself in the temple. He told him in John 2, he is the temple. She's the ark. And you don't touch that ark. That ark in the Old Testament was undefiled and untouched. This new Mary is holy. She's untouched. She's undefiled. Do you think Joseph would defile this ark? Nope. (laughs) (laughs) Joseph's from the house of David, and he knew when David took that ark to Jerusalem, it was touched. Yusa accidentally slipped, and uh, Yusa was struck dead just because he accidentally touched the ark. Joseph knows to reverence the ark. Mary is the new Ark of the Covenant, and what she contains in her womb was Jesus, the true presence of God. Amen. Amen. Sharon, thanks so much. We appreciate it. You're welcome. Have a great afternoon. And you too.